Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So this week, we are not going to talk about Donald Trump. We are not going to talk about the impeachment. We're not going to talk about Nancy Pelosi or the Democrats or the Republicans or Mark Zuckerberg or any of that stuff. We're going to talk about something way more important. We're going to talk about neuroscience, meditation, free will, all those terrifying, fun relaxing sometimes uh, topics. The person who's going to talk to us about that stuff is none other than Sam Harris. He is an author, a neuroscientist. He has his own podcast. He has a new app out called Waking Up, which is a meditation app that not just teaches you how to meditate, but it teaches you about what's going on in your brain when that happens. And he's coming on the show today to talk about all of this stuff and we're going to have a pretty in-depth conversation about free will. Sam believes there is no free will which is kind of scary when you think about it, but he, he, has, he has reasons for this belief, which he's going to get into. And we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about why this practice that is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old is the thing that we should be really focusing on right now, not necessarily that other stuff that I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast. So without further ado, Sam Harris. Sam, thank you so much for coming back today. This is incredibly exciting. I think it's been like a year since you something were here. Like that, something yeah. like that. Something like that. You you look uh, younger, uh, more good handsome. To know. Um, all right. So you uh, you reached out to me. You had an app that you had done on meditation. I had another guest on the show who uh, we were talking about, you know, trying to get away from our devices and time and emotions and and meditation and so on. So. I tried to use your app, mm. and you came into the bedroom with my wife and I every single night for a couple of weeks. Right. And which, is, which is not the, the sanctioned use of the app, I, I must say. <laughs> and the, the, the part that was really fascinating, so I kind of I got into it in the beginning. I was like, all right, I can do this. I can meditate. And I, 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 will, I will preface this by saying that I am... I have a, my mind goes 5,000 places a minute, every, you know, just yeah. all the well, time. You're not and alone. No. And noises are like... We have two little kids, and... When they're screaming, it really, really bothers me, like my ears. And I mm. actually like have I walk out with I walk around sometimes on weekends with noise canceling headphones on. Right, I can still hear <laughs> them screaming, but yeah. I don't have to hear it that intense. But it doesn't bother my wife. And so anyway, I'm, I'm listening, and I get to I think it's episode four, and you start talking about or meditation four about how you kind of have to take the noises in and and kind of accept them. And I couldn't concentrate. And am I just am I is there something wrong with me? That I couldn't well, do it. No, well, no. I, I think you just have to give it more time because it is true that for this kind of meditation, which is you know loosely falls under the, the framing of mindfulness, th- noises are not a distraction. I mean, there, there are cur- certain kinds of meditation for which uh, noises and other sensory experience are distractions. Well, that's what I was going to yeah. ask. So there's other apps I've tried to use, and they're like, oh, just you know, when the noise comes, just flick it away like a balloon. What's what? What is different about the way you approach it? That's, that's the first question. And second, is 
Can you explain from a like neurological perspective what is actually happening when you try to meditate and do it successfully, of course? Yeah, well, it depends, again, on what practice you're doing. And there are many different styles of practice. But generally speaking, there are, well, to back up, we're spending almost all our time lost in thought. That's just our, our default state, right? And very few people realize that vividly until they attempt to meditate and, and, and dis- discover what a struggle it is to pay attention to anything. And uh, so, so that, that's the first thing you can, you can realize from any meditation practice is just how much white noise there is in your head that you haven't noticed before. And it's not, it's not inconsequential because it is the thing that is driving you to feel and do all kinds of things that are, uh, you know, undermining your happiness, right? I mean, the, the fact that you feel so neurotic most of the time, and I don't mean you personally, but oh, one... No, you can say me. Yes. Um, <laughs> is, is a consequence of just the story you're telling yourself most of the time, the thoughts you're embedded in as a matter of attention most of the time, and those are kindling negative emotions, you know, all of your judgment of others and of yourself. Are they yourself. a bug or a feature? I mean, are they meant to be there? Or is it? Is well, it, it's a feature... I mean, thought itself, you know, linguistic thought in particular is a feature in that it allows for everything human about us to come online. I mean, it's the fact that we can have a conversation like this is based on thought. Uh, if we couldn't you know, form concepts and, and generalize about experience, we, we would be merely apes. We wouldn't be, you know, distinct from... Again, you know, me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not that thought is bad, uh, but the... The automaticity of it, to have no perspective on it, mm-hmm. to be ruled by it, to be to be the mere captive of the next thing that comes uh, emerging into consciousness unbidden, uh, and to have no recourse, right? Like, like if, if the next thought simply comes up from behind and, and seems to become you, right, then you are merely as judgmental or anxious or fearful or, or regretful or, you know, shamed or embarrassed or whatever it is as that thought dictates. You have no perspective. And then, you, and then you are left with the task of arranging the world, arranging your life in the world, arranging the beha- trying to arrange or modify the behavior of other people so as to make yourself feel better, right? Like if, if you're compelled in every moment to, if you're taken in by your, the, what is essentially your, your, your waking dream life of thought in every moment, um, then you're then the only way to become happy is to become happy in the world right you're not seeing your own contribution to your your state of consciousness in each moment but the thing that's so that i find so interesting is you talk a lot about the benefits of meditation and and so to you know this is something that thousands years thousands of years old you just told me you've been doing it for 30 years mm-hmm. and yet it's so difficult to do if it if there are so many benefits why is it so difficult well, because there's nothing about evolution or even about culture all, uh, thus far that has optimized us for well-being, right? I mean, certainly evolution is just not in the well-being game at all. Evolution, all evolution can see about us is our successful procreation, right? So that's that we, we are designed to spawn and stick around long enough to help our progeny spawn, and that's it, right? So that, like, nothing... There's no, I mean, just take the fact that there are pains that you can feel that are excruciating, but basically inconsequential. And 
yet you can also have stage four cancer and there's just there's no pain associated with it at all until it's far too late right so like we we can't even we're not even optimized to detect massive physical problems internal to our own bodies that we can now do something about right like if you you know it's just this is not nature is not about our well-being on any level got it makes sense and so so it is true of the mind right and so we we have these these tools that have been um uh, given to us uh, through evolution and language is the defining certainly the defining characteristic of you know the line of apes that we have become uh and it has enabled us to do everything that makes us human but it also enables us to suffer unnecessarily it, it enables us to tell a story about the past and the future that we find so compelling that we live most of our lives buffeted back and forth between past and future and over the course of a day make almost no direct contact at all with the present moment. It's almost like a round of golf. I don't know if you, do you play golf? When I was a kid, I, my dad took me a few times, but right. n- not now. Okay. So I, you know, I rarely play golf, but when I do, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's amazing. The fun of golf gets con- is condensed down to when you think of the, the amount of contact you make with the ball over the course of four hours of playing golf, it's something like, you know, one second of contact or, or even less, right? So it's like, the, I mean, it's just our lives have that character. I mean, we, we very rarely have a full collision with the present moment. And when we do, we find those to be transfiguring moments. I mean, those are, that's what people experience on psychedelics or in the, in, in when they actually do a lot of meditation practice successfully or in so-called peak flow states in their lives, right? But the difference between meditation and almost anything else you can do to have those kinds of experiences is that meditation cuts through the illusion that the experience is associated with the, 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 its apparent proximate causes in your life. So if you're a surfer who gets up every morning at dawn to surf, and you do that because it makes you feel so good because there's nothing like that moment of catching a wave and that just, you know, you completely forget about your life, what you have to do later in the day, the meeting that you're anxious about, the, the thing that didn't go well yesterday, your relationship glitches. You forget about all of that. You're just totally at one with the experience of surfing, right? You very likely think there's something about surfing that is important, right? And for, you know, any given person, that is, in fact, True. I mean, they, 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 they mistake the doorway for the experience that, that um, it enables. Meditation cuts through that because what you're discovering is that, at least in this type of meditation, where you're, you're not adding anything strategically to your experience, you're just paying attention, um, you discover that paying sufficient attention to anything can become as rewarding as, as the, 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 your, your most valued peak experience, right? It's, it's a, it's a quite, the peak experience is not dependent really on the contents of consciousness, that the peak experience is, is dependent upon the quality of, of attention. So what made you decide, so you've written a bunch of books, you, uh, you know, you've, you have a very, very successful podcast. You, you, you know, you do the whole media circuit thing. You're, you know, you, you're out there in lots of different ways. What made you decide that the next version of your pathway was going to be making an app that was going to teach people how to do this? 
Well, so so my my app waking up is kind of a, a direct descendant of my book by that title. So I wrote my book waking up in I guess it was 2014 it came out, um, and that was just you know my argument that you can have a deep spiritual contemplative life without believing any bullshit, right? So it's, you you know how how long I've been criticizing organized religion and and drawing a very stark opposition between faith and reason as just you know types of and are, software and essentially arguing that that if you you know the, a lot of people say oh well, you need religion to yeah to to whatever yeah, yeah. I, i'm saying that basically you know if, if religion is giving us uh morality or community or anything else you know worth having it's giving us those things at, at too high a cost, and there are better ways to have those things. I mean, that's, that's my argument. That's, so there's nothing essential. No one's going to strap a suicide bomb against their vest and uh, against their body and, and go blow themselves up over meditation, essentially. No, no. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, there's a lot there down that path if we wanted to talk about it. But the, uh, so, so my book, Waking Up, was my argument that, that even the, the most esoteric concerns of mystics, I mean, things like, you know, self-transcendence, uh, are uh, there and worth exploring and don't require believing any divisive nonsense to, to explore, right? And in, in fact, belief-based religion, you know, faith-based religion is not the tool to really explore the, the, the deeper dimensions of, of human well-being um, or even get at something fundamental about the nature of, of consciousness. Uh, and uh, but but neither is third person empirical science. I mean, it's not so. so it, what a lot of atheists do in in this in this war of words against religion is say, well, we don't need religion to have profundity and awe and you know spiritual upliftment, because when I listen to Bach, you know, or I look at the night sky, I look at the Milky Way, and you know, on a clear night, I I feel the same. I feel I feel as much awe as any religious person does when they, you know, read the Bible or the Quran, and for better reasons, right? Um, that's a, that actually doesn't get at what, that's not the baby in the bathwater of organized religion. That's not what, G, G, when Jesus, whoever he was, was, was talking to people and, and convincing them that there was a way to engage uh, more profoundly with their lives, he was not pointing up at the Milky Way saying, do you realize there's, you know, there are billions of stars and billions of planets uh, out there? Um, and, and nor was Buddha or any other matriarch or patriarch of, of one of the world's religions. Uh, there is a, you know, if nothing else, religion attests to the fact that certain people have had profoundly deep experiences of transformation in their lives, where they have recognized that there's a way to, to, to be engaged with the present moment that, and to find a well-being there that is not vulnerable to the vicissitudes of, of ordinary neurotic goal-seeking life, and so that and that's where and you know contemplative traditions within any faith, you know the monastic tradition in Christianity or or Buddhism, for instance, um, those are those are the most uh, committed efforts of people to really get at what is you know core to the religious experience. And those are, you know, for the most part, those are not belief-based. I mean, they, I mean, there's, it's contaminated by the doctrines in every case, and so there, there's a fair amount that people have believed for thousands of years that is unjustifiable. But my point is that we, can, we could have a, a 21st century contemplative life. Like, you, could, you, can, you can get your worldview from science, but you can, you can recognize 
that there's a first-person side to an empirical engagement with reality, and that is the side where you, you can actually look more and more closely at what it's like to be you in each moment and discover things about the mind that are true and that you can't discover in a third-person way. You can't discover... No one can tell you about these things. These are, these are, these are features of experience that are there to be encountered firsthand. And because they're true, they actually do align with what we know from a third-person side about the brain more directly. I mean, so, for instance, this, the transcendence of self, the, the illusoriness of the self, which is advertised to a greater or lesser degree in, in, in various wisdom traditions. You know, I think Buddhism puts it most clearly, but not exclusively there. Um, that's actually more in register. Are you talking about enlightenment here when you say that, or are you talking about just well, the idea of... Well, we can talk about what enlightenment... I mean, see, yeah, enlightenment would be the, the kind of the perfect realization of this fact about the mind, So let's say. But the fact that it is a fact about the mind, that the self is a construct and not there's no durable, unchanging kind of center of, of, of narrative gravity in, in our beings. For, you know, it's like the, the person who woke up this morning uh, is not precisely the same as the person who went to sleep last night. Uh, and this... this Apparent continuity is not is not really the result of a, an unchanging self being carried through from moment to moment. Um, that we that makes perfect neurological sense. I mean, there's no place in the brain for yourself to be hiding, for the ego to be hiding, and there's no there's no there's no one place in the brain where it all comes together as a matter of experience, right? Where all the streams of of, of conscious and unconscious input converge on, you know, the pineal gland and, the, you know, the, and there's a, there could be a little homunculus in there owning it all, right? That's just, that's just not the way the brain is and it's not the way the mind should be, right? And uh, at minimum, given that the brain is, a, is, is continually changing its state neurophysiologically, it, it, and again, it's, it's more of a, a verb than a noun in terms of, of uh, being a thing. It's a process rather than a kind of a static object. You would think yourself at a minimum would be a process. You know, it would be, it would be more verb-like than noun-like. And that is something that you can discover from the first-person side, right? And, and it, some of these discoveries are clear enough that you can never overlook them again consciously, right? So they change you in the sense that you, you, it's like, yes, you can get lost in thought again, but when, you're, when you actually pay attention, your experience is, is permanently different as a result of having had these insights from the, the first person side. And so in my app, I'm trying to provoke those. Um, and the reason, to, to come back to your question, why I, I release this as an app, an app is just a much better technology than a book doing this. I mean, it just turns out that audio is the perfect vehicle for this. I mean, vi video doesn't even add much or if anything to it. And so it's such a simple tool. I mean, it really is a glorified MP3 player. You know, <laughs> I try to make it as, you know, as aesthetically nice as possible. And there are other features that will, will bring on insofar as they prove useful. Uh, like, so, so now people can sit together in groups, you know, kind of virtual groups, and there's some accountability and social support there. And Maybe that's another virtue of having an app, but it's really just it's just the fact that guided meditations in audio form are much better than reading a text and then trying to get the point based on 
on your reading. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of sh**. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. So one of the things I've, I've found that I actually truly loved about your app was the lessons, whether mm-hmm. it's about free will or time and, and so on and so forth. But they also scared the shit out of me. Right. <laughs> and right. Uh, and my wife was, we were listening to the to the one on free will. And I didn't expect, oh, an app on meditation would, will have a, a section on free will in there. Uh, and I, I, I've read your book on this topic. And um, and it was, it's it. Well, I think what's so terrifying about it is that it almost feels like when you, when you, hear your viewpoints on free will that we have no free will um uh which you'll explain in a second but it almost feels like you know those um those scientific experiments where you see the cockroach that's like controlling the bowl but really it's like it's right. like some electronic it's the, device it's the robot cockroach it's the yeah. robot cockroach yeah. i like i feel like i'm a robot cockroach first of all i guess the first question is can you explain a little bit about why this is all tied this all ties into the the concept of free will and the mind and so on in that respect ties into meditation, but at the same time, why it's also so terrifying for people to, to kind of think about it. Yeah. Well, so the sense of free will is really the, the obverse of the sense of self. I mean, they are two sides of the same coin, right? So the sense that you have a self, let's take that side first. Most people go through life and certainly start any practice of meditation with this fairly compelling sense that they have a self internal to their bodies, right? So they don't feel identical to their bodies. They don't feel like, you feel like, most people certainly feel like that they're in their heads. They're kind of passengers in the body. And they're a locus of consciousness in the head that can then decide to do things and decide to, to pay attention to certain things. And uh, it's that kind of little man or woman in the head that is that can have free will or be deprived of it, that can have desires uh, gratified or frustrated, that can be moved by intentions. And people feel like they're the author of their in- thoughts and intentions, right? They, they feel like they're the thinker of their thoughts. And that's really the the 
the starting point of any meditation practice, and that is the thing that meditation practice is, in principle, designed to uh, examine to the point of, of uh, undercutting, right? Like is it, that you don't have control of your thoughts? Well, well it's just, yes, it's just that that is a, an illusion that is responsible for a tremendous amount of psychological suffering, right? If not all of our psychological suffering. So that's, this is where we can bracket the promise of meditation. So you, you asked about enlightenment before. The, tr the traditional view of enlightenment, let's say the Buddhist view, is that 100% of your suffering is the result of you being taken in by certain illusions about the, the nature of mind. And if you can cut through those illusions, you are, you're completely free of suffering, right? Now, I'm somewhat agnostic about certain forms of suffering. I mean, like we can we can be uncertain about just how far this this goes, but I, I can attest that a, a tremendous amount of psychological suffering is clearly the result of being taken in by by the illusion of self, and in particular by not being able to see thoughts for what they are as just mere appearances in consciousness. That they're not that that we we feel identified with our stream of thinking in each moment, right? So, um, uh, and, and again, as, as I said earlier, then you are, if you are identified with each thought as it arises, then you are, you are compelled to, to feel and do precisely what the, 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 the kind of the propositional contents of the thought suggests. So if it's a, if it's a self-hating thought or an anxious thought, um, and you're not again. You're not aware of it as a thought. You're just identified with it. Then you you feel precisely those states, and then and feeling those states kindles yet more thinking along those lines. And you're thinking about how how can I stop feeling this way? And I mean to, to give it a, a, a very concrete example. Now, I used to be, as many people are, kind of pathologically afraid of public speaking. Mm -hmm. right? Like I just it was just a major stress for me to to anticipate having to get up on stage and speak. Um, and so I avoided it successfully for a very long time. And then I wrote my first book and I realized I had to do a book tour and there's just no way to, to be an author really, you know, without getting out and, and talking about what you wrote. Been there, done that. Yeah. So I, so I had to get over this problem and part, part of getting over it is just doing it and having rewarding experiences doing it. And so you, you don't actually need meditation to get over it, but meditation can, can really supercharge this process because, what it allows you to do is you know, break the, the link between thought and emotion where you, you can just, you, if you just become willing to feel the anxiety as just sheer energy in your body, right, without continuing to think about all the reasons why you should be anxious or all the things that you, you might yet do to stop from feeling this, right, you just, re, you just relinquish your resistance to feeling this uh, and just become even curious in what uh, curious about what anxiety is as a pattern of energy in your body? Uh, if you can really do that, and it, t it takes just a moment to really do that, but I mean, there are many counterfeits to doing this. I mean, you can you can be meditating on it or paying attention to it so that it will go away, and that that hidden agenda really falsifies the whole uh, experience. Uh, it just doesn't work. But if you can really just accept it in that moment and feel it as energy. It's, it becomes completely meaningless, right? Like it has no more meaning. It has no more psychological meaning than a pain in your knee or indigestion or any other unpleasant sensation you might feel that you would never read back onto your character as a 
kind of psychological emergency. Right? So if you, if you were walking out on stage to give a TED talk, say, and you felt you know, kind of itching on the back of your hand, you would never read into that unpleasant sensation, oh my God, why am I this fucking schmuck who just can't you know, get out of his own way? You know, I, I, like, I, I gotta give this talk and I got this itching on the back of my hand and you know, it's like uh, I'm such a failure, right? It, it, never, it would never start that cascade but anxiety, this pattern of energy in the chest and in the, in the face, uh, gets read back as of profound significance. Well, but isn't right? that because it, it triggers your fight or flight that, that is part of your little lizard brain that is like, I, something is terrifying me and I'm, you know, I have to do something about it. Oh my God, here's a panic yeah, attack, yeah, run away. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it's, it is, if you can break, the, if you can just become, again, the, the, the word is, is mindful, of it as a pattern of energy, uh, in, the moment where, in the moment where you can truly do that, uh, and again, the, the true level of doing that does entail a kind of a loss of the sense of self, right, which, which we will get back to, um, then you, you do actually break the, its connection to psychological suffering, right? It then does not, it, it, it is, you recognize that your mind is merely a, a much larger space in which this pattern of energy is appearing, and it has no implication, right? And, and realizing that allows it to dissipate. I mean, the half-life of an emotion like anxiety is very, very short, and so it is with anger or anything else you might feel that's, that's classically negative. If you can just connect with them as patterns of energy and get out of your thoughts about them, you, they, you they dissipate that, very, very are quickly. Are you saying that you should... Is, is the way you solve, you do that... By accepting that you have no free will, or by meditating, or is it one and the same? Well, it, it is one and the same in the end, but it's no, it's not. It's by it's by being willing to experience what is ever arising in consciousness in that moment, right? With that, just like kind of giving up your war against your experience, if only for a moment, right? Like the 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 doorway into a kind of radical equanimity and ease of being with whatever's happening is this just willingness to just see contents and its the contents of consciousness as this changing flow of appearance from the point of view of of a, a, a radical openness and interest in the next thing that is appearing so so again it's like it's it's, it's it breaks the the valence of anxiety is no longer pointing toward despair and misery and failure and you know, psychological states of catastrophe. It's just energy. And, and if you, when you pay attention to it closely, it's very similar to experiences that you actually value, like, like excitement, you know, like, like the thrill. Like, like it is the thing you're paying for when you're, you're paying to go on a roller coaster or do something that may, gives you a similar sense of thrill uh, it's, you know, as a matter of just physiology, almost indistinguishable from what you're feeling when you feel neurotically, you know, self-conscious. But so, okay, so I have a huge deadline uh, in a month and a half and have found myself waking up in the middle, and I usually sleep pretty well, and I've mm -hmm. been literally waking up in the middle of the night, and I think about all this thing all the time, it's this looming thing, and I'm trying to solve it in my head, and it's like, if, and yet, I have, I have... Do I have control over that, or do, or do I not? Because it's not something that I, I'm not. I don't want to wake up thinking about this thing, but it's right. 
but it's at the same time you're saying that I don't even have the decision of whether I do. Well, so yeah, so, I mean, there are two levels at which we can talk about this, and they're they're confusing because they they seem to suggest opposite states of of uh, what is true. So on the level of choice being real, right? Learning to meditate, learning, grabbing the tool of mindfulness and actually honing it to the point where you can use it in, in, uh, under conditions of real stress, that does give you a choice that you otherwise won't have, right? So if you, if you don't know what mindfulness is and you don't know how to practice it, you are merely condemned to think whatever you're going to think for as long as you're going to think it, right? I mean, that's just, that's your life, right? And then you're left with, you know, your relationships being the props that sort of dig you out, right? So you have, you have your wife to tell you to stop being such a, you know, a self-absorbed person uh, or whatever it is. And then you, you're, you're, but you're, the half-life of emotions like anger and anxiety can, can seem very, very long, right? Like you can see, you can, ha- subjectively, you can, have the experience of why well, I was angry for, you know, the whole day or an hour, right? Whereas the moment you bring mindfulness online significantly, I mean, truly, I mean, that can take some training to actually discover what that entails. But once you learn how to do that, you recognize that the half-life of an emotion like anger is very, very short. I mean, it's impossible to stay angry for more than a, f- a few moments of it at a time without just rekindling it by being lost in thought about the reasons why you're angry. And um, so then, so then you're, you actually do have a choice about how you, over how you, long you want to stay angry for, right? And that becomes a kind of superpower, right? So you, 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 you find yourself provoked to anger, right? And then mindfulness comes online, and you can have a clear look at the, at the situation and think, all right, now is, is this worth being angry over. And you had then, then, so there's a kind of metacognition that comes online where it's not that the, the emotion of anger is totally useless. I mean, it can, it's, it, it's a kind of energy that can provoke, you know, a, a kind of an appropriate response to injustice or, you know, aggression. I mean, there, there are things that are worth being outraged over. But the question is, you know, what's the optimal state of mind in which to respond, right? You notice something has happened that, that, provokes anger or fear or, or you know, the, you know, the, the emergency response. Uh, but then the question is, what's the, what's the right state of mind to, to be in to respond to that thing? And if you're just stewing in anger over it, that's, that's rarely the optimal state of mind to, to be in. So mindfulness gives you a choice about how long to indulge this, this emotion. And uh, again, if you, it, that doesn't suggest that free will is a thing. Right. Why not? Because that's where like, I was thinking. I'm like yeah. you're saying. I don't. I, I. You know. We we don't have free will because we don't. But then right. you're saying we do. Well, because because everything simply arises. So it's, it's take me. So I know how to meditate. You know, mindfulness is something that I can resort to in any given moment. You know, for any reason. Um, but I'm also lost in thought uh, a lot. Right. So I'm going through my day. I'm lost in thought, and then I suddenly recognize. You know thought as thought, as a, as a mere appearance in consciousness. I have kind of a vivid clarity about just, you know, what I am and, and, and what is true. Let's call that mindfulness. Um, those just come when they come and go when they go, right? They're, everything is simply happening, 
right? Every, like, like, I don't know what the next thought is going to be until it arises. And I can't, because I can't think it before I think it, right? And it, I don't know when it's going to arise. Like, if we just sat here and waited for, for the next thought to arise, for, you know, you or for me, um, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't have to wait long, but we wouldn't, its emergence is exact, if you pay attention, it has the exact character of us hearing something coming from your neighbor's yard, right? Like we're, we can't predict, if, we were, if we're just going to listen to the ambient sounds here, right, we can't predict what the next one's going to be. Something's going to, going to appear, you know, the, a bird will, will tweet, and we'll recognize in, in, in the moment of hearing it, we, we could recognize this more or less vividly, and, and doing it, you know, vividly is, begins to have the character of, of mindfulness. Um, we could recognize that we didn't produce that sound. We didn't choose to hear it. We didn't push it out of consciousness when it left, right? I mean, it, it simply appeared. And thoughts are like that. And moments of mindfulness, even so when you train it as a skill and you become an expert in it, it still has that character where it's just, it's simply, things simply arise and disappear. And so that is, that's the bottom line, no matter what you, no matter what skills you have. It's like speaking. Like, so at a certain point I learned how to speak, right? So now I'm using English and uh, it's the only language I speak fluently. Um, and we can tell a story about why that's so, but, but the experience of using English is, is, a, is still, like everything else, fundamentally mysterious in that I'm following the rules of grammar more or less unconsciously. I make certain errors which, and, and, which are inscrutable to me. I mean, I can't really own my successes and I can't own my failures, right? And I can't really own my word choices, Right, so I, so I, you know, I just said word choices, right? Now I could have said decisions, right? It's sort of synonymous with choices, right? Uh, I can't, I, I don't have deep insight in, into why I picked one word over another in any moment. And so there's this flow of experience that I mean, even under the conditions of, of greatest volition, where I'm choosing to speak now, I'm not going to stop this sentence until I stop it. I see you want to talk, but I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> right? We both have our microphones. I'm going to go on as long as I can within, within the bounds of English grammar before I get to the end of this. But, and I, this is all, I can make it as laborious as I want if I pay actual, close attention to how thoughts emerge, right? I mean, there's a sense in which I am hearing what I think exactly when you do. I'm not, I'm not thinking this and then vocalizing it. I'm thinking out loud when I'm speaking. Right? So it's like you and I are both hearing what I think in real time at, at, at precisely the same moment. Um, and when I shut up and think silently to myself, nothing fundamentally changes. I'm just you're not, still I'm just not verbalizing thoughts, it. Right? But you're not verbalizing it. And, and ima- just imagine what it would be I mean, there's more chaos in there when you're, you're thinking silently to yourself. And just imagine what it would be like if we had the technology to broadcast your silent thoughts you know, like over a loudspeaker, where oh, you just sound you, like an insane person. Yeah, it would just it would just be you. One thing you would notice, and everyone else would notice, is that you you're willing to tell yourself the same story over and over again. Like the, the like the capacity for boredom as your own audience seems to be zero, right? <laughs> and that's that's just bizarre. I mean, it is a kind of mental illness. I mean, that, that, the thing that the, the punchline here, from a a psychological point of view, is that 
we have all accepted by default that 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 the the, the normal pattern of kind of inwardness and self-obsession and immersion in discursive thought, you know, automatically every waking moment is is normal. It's like, it being normal in the sense that it's well subscribed suggests that it's 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 not it's compatible with psychological health, right? But it's um, it is it is it's very much like psychosis. I mean, like it's very much like being. If you look at like like what being a, being asleep and dreaming is like. I mean, you go to sleep, you're lying in bed, and then some, an inner movie comes online. And you are completely confused about your circumstance, right? You're you're actually psychotic. I mean, the only difference between dreaming and psychosis is that you can't, in the normal course of events, you can't get out of bed and act on these delusions. But you're talking to people who aren't there, and you're convinced they are there. I mean, you know, leaving lucid dreams aside, you're you're powerfully moved by emotions that are completely inappropriate to your circumstance because you really are just safely in bed, and yet you're, you know, careening through some landscape of of uh, adventure and emergency. The laws of physics are suspended and you don't even notice. It, it, there's a radical discontinuity between who you are in the, in the dreamscape and your actual life and you don't even possess enough episodic memory to notice that anything is unusual. I mean, you're talking to dead people and you don't even, you don't, half the time you don't even notice that you know, they, they should be dead but now they're alive and you're, you're at a dinner party with them. Uh, you know, you're you've completely forgotten who you were in your waking life for the most part and now you're just accepting the fact that you're you know in a relationship with some celebrity or you know somebody who you've never met you're you're delusional right and there's there's something of that character in our waking life with our identification with thought you're thinking you're having a conversation with yourself that in 99% of moments is totally unnecessary. And they're, 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 having a conversation with yourself can be can be functional. I mean, certain things we need to do, we need it for. So again, thought's not the enemy here. But for the most part, the conversation with yourself is a kind of layer of delusion and distraction that you that you're you're unable to inspect. Right? You're just you're you're moving through life, you know, and you're you're in dialogue. In, in most respects, with someone who isn't there, right? You're, in, in, in many respects, it, it's, it's superfluous. Like, uh, I mean, just it, it, think of any example of, of, of inner dialogue where you, uh, you know, I come in here and I say to myself, um, oh, I got to silence my phone, right? Now, that, the structure of that inner sentence presumes a kind of dialogue. So it's like the I and the me are talking. Like, who am I telling? Like, I know I have to silence my phone. Who's the one to hear that sentence, right? Is the only way for me to silence my phone, for me to tell myself as though I'm telling another person to silence my phone? Well, no. For, I mean, for, again, there's some exceptions to this, but for the most part, we are in dialogue. With, it's like we, when we learn to speak. What are the exceptions? Well, it's just, I think it can be useful, it can certainly be useful to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a friend. I mean, so you could, I mean, to talk yourself off a ledge, you mean? Or yeah, to, like, yeah. like, I mean, like to give yourself a kind of, like, to, to, to for, first to, 
like when I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm stressed about my yeah. project. Well, so there, there, uh, ne- negative self-talk has has so much leverage over us that positive self-talk can be a good antidote to it, right? So it's 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 useful to invoke that machinery skillfully. Um, again, you don't have to be taken in by the illusion of that there that there's really is a dialogue there in order to do it, but. Um, yeah, it's just to to explicitly represent certain states of the world linguistically to and imagistically to oneself is what makes us human. I mean, to, 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 you have to be able to think about the future in order to plan for it. But it, 99% of our thoughts about the future are not the pragmatic uh, module running of let's just plan the calendar and figure out what's going to happen for the rest of the day and the rest of the month and the rest of the year. No, not even um, remotely it, it's just close. The, it's, uh, it's this automaticity that is producing anxiety and, and, and even more important, preventing us from fully connecting with the present moment, even in those moments when we're getting exactly what we want and, and, and plan for so laboriously. I mean, we, we spend our lives, and this is the, the painful irony, is that we spend our lives seeking happiness, seeking to gratify desire, seeking to reach goals, uh, you know, get, and really getting behind ourselves and pushing you know, for eight hours a day, at least every day, uh, and deferring gratification until those moments when we have good enough reason to be gratified because it's all come together. You, know, you, you, you finished the book or you won the award or you you know, something, you know, you, you got married or something, you know, the thing you've been looking forward to has finally happened. And when we get to that thing, it becomes a kind of mirage because our attention is such that we can't fully connect with the present. And it's only in those, those extreme moments where the, the, the life has arranged itself such that the present moment becomes so compelling that we can't overlook it, that we get these these clear moments of just full immersion. And then we, we consider those, you know, again, then, then the signature of those moments is that thing in the world, that life event, that relationship, that, you know, that peak experience, uh, that's why we were able to feel so gratified for those so 30 are you seconds. Saying, so are you essentially saying that, that, that we, we navigate this world essentially not of our own fruition, but because there's something driving us to do that. And in that navigation, we are constantly looking for things that will invoke that golf ball moment where we have a moment where we're like, oh, here's the present. I feel calm in this moment. And that that's essentially what we're doing. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, if that's the case, hmm. why... It seems... I, I, I completely understand what you're saying about how we... You know, this the, this all contributes to, to conversation and thought and 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 us talking and so on and so forth. But it seems like um, we, as we're pretty, we're we're not idiots. We're not that smart, but we're not idiots. Like, wouldn't we kind of get to a point where we kind of understand that at an earlier point in in our lives individually or as a whole? It seems like what's happening right now is, you know. There's a million meditation books. It's like everyone's going on these fucking silent retreats and whatnot. And it, it seems like these devices, this our, our phone that you just silenced, is is kind of driving us to realize that that we need to look for those golf ball moments. Is that correct? Or is it... Well, so, I mean, this is an ancient problem that, that predates most of what 
you think is so distracting and is in fact so distracting about modern life, right? So like when you look at, you know, someone like the Buddha had this very critique of human life in, in the year, you know, around 500 BC, right? Where there was you no technology more advanced than a, than a wheelbarrow, right? So it's like, it's in, in, in a circumstance that you and I would view as getting fully off the grid, Right, you know, we just you know we decide to go to the you know, the foothills of the Himalayas, and w- without our smartphones, yeah. and take a month where we're just going to you know drink tea and watch the sunset, and you play know, with a wheelbarrow, right? yeah, and uh, you know admire the neighbor's wheelbarrow, right, uh, covet the neighbor's wh- wheelbarrow. Um, that is precisely the circumstance of of where normal human attention is just mayhem. Right from the, the, this point of view of what the mind could be like if you really knew how to pay attention to, to consciousness as it is. And so do you think that, so how, what is the role that modern technology is playing in all of this? Well, I, I think in, in, I mean, it's playing a dual role. It's, it's, it's making some things better. It's making many things worse. I mean, the, one thing I like about the app, and it's, it's somewhat ironic, is that, uh, you know, or any meditation app, uh, is that it's a great subversion of this device, which is the, the vehicle of so much distraction and uh, you know, fragmentation of our lives. I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is not uh, like almost anything else you could do with a smartphone. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, my app or you know, any of these apps, Headspace, Calm, 10% Happier, um, they're delivering guided meditations that uh, are just fundamentally different from anything else you're, Candy you're, you're crush doing or yeah, any other any, or, or, or even there. just you know reading frankly even just re- reading you know uh, anything you would you would read on your phone whether it's the New York Times or um, I mean there, there's something there's something about audio as well which is I mean where you know you and I are living this extends to podcasts to some degree so, I mean we're living through a new golden age of audio because it's um, I mean, there's something more intimate about it than video. I mean, it's like it's right in your, it's right at your ear. You know, it's right in your head. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously podcasts are being consumed mostly when people are multitasking now. I mean, they're driving, they're working out, they're, they're, or they're, they have some career where they can, you know, they can, you know, if you're a graphic designer or something, you can actually work while listening to something that has nothing to do with what you're working on. Uh, so people are multitasking, but uh, there's something about audio that is that is very pure and uh, it is just perfectly designed for this kind of instruction and 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 to guide your attention um, because what what happens when you when you try to meditate as you know is that you discover that you know you close your eyes you try to follow your breath or pay attention to whatever the, the object is of, of of the practice and moments later you're carried away by thought. And in, in, in many cases, you're not, you don't remember that you're supposed to be meditating until you hear the voice yeah, come online no, saying, hey, you know, if, if you're lost in thought, can you come back to the breath? Um, and so it becomes a kind of uh, alarm clock for awareness, uh, which, you know, for the longest time can be indispensable. I mean, it's, it's, the truth is it's helpful for virtually anyone at any point because it just, it builds it, whatever the natural course of you noticing that you get lost in thought and then coming back to the practice, it's going to, the, the number of times in any given period of 10 minutes that you're going to do that 
will increase if you have somebody looking over your shoulder effectively saying, you're probably lost in thought right now. Come back to the practice. Uh, so you, you just will be more mindful. Do you think that um, as we look at the, the futures, the, these technologies become more advanced in AI, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, and I know you've talked about it on, with a lot of people, um, are we going to get to a point where we kind of shun the technologies because we can't beat them and, and they're, they're too, they have too much control over us? I mean, I would argue that these devices do already. Um, is, or, it, 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 might, it might go the other way. I, so I could imagine a technology, and this is something that I, I would build into my app if uh, it ever became available, and there are people who are working on this. I could imagine a technology that becomes a more precise feedback machine where you know your phone could tell you when you're getting lost in thought very directly hmm. right so it could be a very intrusive mindfulness alarm uh, and it that would work to really supercharge your practice and uh, I could I could readily imagine that the problem is just that anything you're going to pipe into your smartphone now is going to be measuring peripheral physiology that's, that's not going to be a good marker of what you're actually doing at the level of your attention. But, I mean, there are people certainly working on this. And if, uh, yeah, I mean, if we ever have anything like, you know, truly high bandwidth connectivity between the brain and the, the cloud, we're going to, you know... The, we're going to the, use the, it the, to the, shut, the, shut the brain down a little well, bit? Well, we're going to use it to to amplify human well-being as clearly as we can conceive it, right? It's like, well, so what that means will be um, very interesting to consider. Because I, I, so I, cause I think many positive states of mind, classically positive states of mind, like, you know, bliss or ecstasy, are ethically neutral, right? I mean, we want them. They're good. They, they, they seem to be the payoff for for so many ways in which we could have a, a life well-lived, right? You know, creative joy, right? Like the joy associated with some kind of creative breakthrough. Um, but the problem is, is that if we ever fully intrude into our, you know, wetware such that we can have these states on demand, then they become you know, actually orthogonal to whatever's happening in the world that could seem to justify them. And that we know there are pathological forms of ecstasy and bliss and rapture because, you know, I'm, you know, you you know, every suicide bomber before he detonates his bomb is feeling something akin to those emotions when he does it, ba based on what this act means in the context of his belief system and his expectations of paradise. And you know, it's been widely reported that a lot of these guys have a, a gigantic smile on their faces before they, you know, just as the truck is, you know, plowing into the marine barracks or, or in any other situation where people have witnessed this. So pathological gratification is also on the menu and this becomes uh just a straightforward liability of of having a direct yeah. connection to our limbic systems because i mean it's just, then we become the rat who's just hitting a lever which i know. feel like we yeah. are now with our technologies yeah. one of the lessons in the app that uh that i have i actually have thought about and struggled with for a long time especially in the age of technology that you that you talk about is time and how mm -hmm. this second is now gone, this hour is now gone. The, it's, a, it's this thing that we, we 
tend to kind of think about some, a lot of the times, most of us think about in the wrong way and we waste it and we don't realize how valuable it is. And I'm curious as someone who has been meditating for so long and who thinks about this all the time, do you, have, do, has your decision-making changed as a result of like what you will do with your time as a result of being yeah. completely aware of it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have the very common experience of looking back on any chapter of the past and feeling that some significant portion of that time was misspent, right? So like, the, 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 I, I know what it's like to uh, kind of regret what, what appears it just, you know, in hindsight to have been a wastage of time. And this is more, I mean, this is certainly true with uh, my engagement with social media. I mean, when I look back on how I use Twitter over the last... You don't what, use it as much anymore, right? Yeah, no, I've stepped, I've stepped way media. back... Um, and that's been great. And, and, and to, to engage with it to the degree that I do now, is bit, it's like, to some degree, the, the, the spell has been broken. And now when I come back to it and I see people just in the trenches on Twitter, you know, people who I you know, respect and you know, people who I consider friends and colleagues, there is a, I, I have a perspective on how dysfunctional this is that I didn't have before. And I, I, I had it conceptually before. I could have paid lip service to it. If, you, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, I could have, I could have probably spoken well, all I, I think, of the, these sentences. The two year, I mean, from, I went through the same exact thing. And I think the thing back then, you, there were more opportunities where you actually got something full, fulfilling and gratifying out of it. And, and eventually those things just became so far apart. And then you, you look at yourself and you're like, what did I just do for two yeah. hours? Or, 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 you know, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, for so many reasons, it's it's been dysfunctional for me. Um, I mean, it's been a, a kind of professional necessity, or at least I convinced myself that it was a professional necessity, and I still use it. You know, I use it to to some degree curate my news diet. I mean, I, I follow a lot of smart people, and I see what they're reading, and, the, and so you know, half the articles I discover probably have come to me through Twitter, um, and then I use it as a as a publishing or a marketing channel. And so when I, when I release something new, I tell Twitter about it. But, um, yeah, when I just look at, I mean, so many, professionally speaking, so many of the life deranging conflicts I've gotten into, you know, touching as, as many controversial topics as I do have been entirely artifacts of Twitter. Like had I not been on Twitter, I would not have had some of these awful encounters that I've had. Uh, or, or not felt the need to respond to something which, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have responded to. And, I mean, mm. the, the mere response made it made it a a very large object that then had to be navigated around. Um, so yeah, I've just rethought all of that. And but again, the the capacity to regret a life misspent and an attention misappropriated. Uh, because of the emotional consequences of, of misappropriating it. I mean, just to kind of miss all of the uh, the moments in life because you're deferring your your willingness to just be with, you know, you, you, your family, say, um, uh, because you think you're going to, you, know, you, can, you can all wait until the vacation you're going to take, you know, two months from now. Um, that is, that's the substance of a, a life of regret uh, and has been for again thousands of years. I mean, this is not long before we had this kind of technology that could uh, 
shatter our our uh, attention to the degree that it, it now is, uh, people were taken in by the same mirage, the where same, it's just like the just same, deferring just wheelbarrows, right? Yeah, deferring happiness until some future time where it's really warranted. You know. So what? Are, so what are some examples of things that you do? Do you spend more time meditating? Do you spend more time? Do you read more books? Is that it? Is that a good use of your mental time? Like what? What is it? What are examples of things that you do now that you're much more aware of the time that you have? Well, there's no distinction between the formal practice of meditation and my just paying attention to anything in in my daily life. So I mean, I do I do meditate, you know, explicitly med- meditate as well, but. Um, it's really just in the service of being able to be clearly aware of certain things in this moment. I mean, in the moment of, you know, having this conversation with you. So, uh, and to the degree that I can do that, that is synonymous with what I'm calling the the practice of meditation, right? So to recognize that, you know, consciousness is just this open space where everything is arising on its own and there's no self in the middle of it, right? That's something that you can, you can, it's compatible with having a conversation like this. You don't have to have that experience alone with your eyes closed on a cushion, and then you come back, and then you're you're ordinarily you know yeah. dualistic and neurotic in, in other moments in life. So, so the goal, if you can, if you want to think about it in terms of goals, is is to is to fully erode the apparent boundary between you know formal practice and the rest of life. But what that means for the rest of life is that you now know that. The present moment is is the, the, the cash value of of a good life is is all is really in, in the summation of of full recognitions of the value of the present moment, right? So like that, like if you just look at if you t- you're just going to take the kind of the area under the curve of your whole life of just just moment-to-moment experiences of well-being, whatever their cause, right? It is just, it's the summation of all of those moments. And then, and then in addition to that, in the moment-to-moment happiness or suffering, uh, we have the stories we tell ourselves, the kind of the global assessment we can, we can make of our lives. So, you know, I'm going through, you know, this hour, moment-by-moment feeling as I do, noticing whatever I notice, and that can have the character of, you know, neurotic entanglement with thought that goes uninspected, or it can have a just you know, a clear, open, uh, you know, experience of well-being uh, or something between those. And, but then you can ask me, well, so how's it going in your life? You know, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? How's, you know, what's up? And then I, then I again, this is now for this, the next 30 seconds, I have a, this experience of having some kind of retrospective assessment of how life is. Now, we know from the work of, you know, people like Danny Kahneman that those two modes of the kind of the experiencing self and the, and the remembering self um, seem to break apart. Like, the, the, you can, the, there's, there, and, and, the, and the remembering self is the only self that you can reliably talk to. I mean, that's the self that comes online when you ask someone, you know, what, you know, how's your life? Uh, but, and and that self can be delusional, right? That self can be uh, can really falsify what life has been like 
most of the time. Like you can say, like it's, it's and that self is, is super vulnerable to uh, the the kind of recency effect, right? So it's like I so say, you could have a great vacation where things are are uh, you know, if, if I could have sampled your experience minute by minute for for a week, I would have found you know you're you're having a, an unusually good time. Uh, but you know something bad, something bad will happen at the end. There's something weird that happens with you know the, the checkout of the hotel, and you wind up hating the, the person behind the desk, right? They they overcharged you massively. Something happens, and you know that you know I ask you, you know how so how was the vacation? And I get the person who's now talking to me is the person who's just just focused on you know the the how things ended, right? And is waiting that you know uh, hyperbolically. Um, and those moments of, of assessment have a those are those are really the moments where we make massive decisions in our lives, and that, those are the moments we we where uh, that can derange our relationships too, because we're we're talking about things. You know, you'll you be talking to your life, uh, to, to your wife about how the last year has been, right? You know, how's how's our relationship over the last year, right? And you know, it's anybody's guess how faithfully that tracks the moment to moment experience. Um, and you can be delusional in either direction. You can think things are great when they're really not all that great because you've been, you know, super stressed out. And are just when I when I ask you about it, you're just not the person who can acknowledge it. You know, you're not. It's not. It's not even. It's not that you're lying. It's just not really available to memory, right? It's like. Um, so I think what we all want is a. A more. We. I mean, one thing I think we should want is to bring. The, the global retrospective remembering self uh, module into greater register with the the experiencing self, uh, but I do think, and this is, I mean, Danny Kahneman disagrees with me here. I do think that the the at the end of the day, the remembering self is just part of the experiencing self's timeline, right? So, like, like if I if I could just sample your experience from from birth to death. I, I just have all of these moments of experience. Some of those experiences are those moments where you talked about your life, you talked about your hopes and dreams and whether they've been realized. Uh, and we just it just so happens we weight those moments with with unusual value, right? So the moment where you were just pleasantly immersed in drinking the final sip of coffee, right, is valued at one level. The moment when... You know, your child asked you whether you've been happy, you know, uh, as a parent, and you you had to sort of give some s- story and it kind of uh, about about what years of life have been like. We 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 rate that at a very different, uh, you know, by di- very different metric. But the truth is, is there's just been what it's been like to be you throughout, and what meditation allows you to discover is that. The real, the, the only barrier, the, the fundamental barrier to being deeply gratified and at peace with your life is what you're doing with your attention in each moment. It is, the, you're, you're either, you're either lost in thought or you're not, right? Mm-hmm. And until you know how to meditate, you, 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 there's, there's no alternative. You will be lost in thought. And then you're just at the mercy. I mean, some people have a very high level of, Kind of baseline happiness for genetic reasons and circumstantial reasons. They just have good lives, right? They've got they're, they're surrounded by people they love. They're you know fairly 
uh, extroverted and you know charismatic. They, they they're, they're succeeding in all kinds of ways. They're young. They're healthy. They're good looking. They've got like all of all of the contingent conditions for for ordinary states of well-being are 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 in place. They're just very lucky. And you say, and so when you tell them about, you know, if you give them the, the Buddhist, the classically Buddhist framing of this, that, you know, that life is, is filled with suffering and, and dissatisfaction, and there's a real, you know, there's a, there's a riddle to solve here, they don't see the riddle, right? They're just, they, they, got, they got, you know, the, the quarterback of the football team, right? They, they've, they've got so much going on. Still, those people suffer, right? There's no question. And eventually, those people are, are going to suffer in all kinds of ways that, they're not thinking about, right? They're, you know, they're, people close to them will die, they'll get sick, all of that's going to happen. Um, but uh, there's, and I'm not denying that relative states, relative differences in conventional happiness matter, right? So it's, it's better to be healthy and productive and creative and surrounded by people who love you than it is to have none of those things, right? Clearly, the, 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 that, that's a difference that's worth working for to some degree. But the reality is, is that on some fundamental level, consciousness is unchanged by its contents. And you can, you can discover there's, that there's an intrinsic well-being to just being conscious, whatever's happening. I mean, that your, your, your well-being isn't contingent upon changing experience uh, in, on some basic level. Do you believe, um, and you probably only have time for a few more questions, uh, but do you believe that there, I've, I read a book recently about consciousness and, and it argues that everything has consciousness to a certain degree. Which, or rock. which book was it? That wasn't my wife's book, was it? Uh, I don't, conscious? I, conscious? I don't, I don't know. I, a, a brief I guide about, to the fundamental mystery of the mind? Uh, I, I forget. It was on my phone. And, uh, well, I it think, was your Rice book. Then I you probably think, yeah, believe yeah, it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, my, but, my wife, Annika Harris, wrote a book on consciousness. I if think that I, was the one I read, then yeah. it was fantastic. I think that was it. Um, you don't get to see the you don't get to see the cover when you so you're like you're I, just reading words I, I, I've read on your and, phone. I've read and enjoyed books without ever recognizing who the author was or remembering who the author was because you never you never see the cover. Again. No, you never yeah. see the cover. Yeah. I think that they yeah. should like there's a, a UI problem they need to solve there. You also what the other part of that that sucks is you never get to see what book someone's reading. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I used to love being on the subway. And someone would have, you know, a book, and I'd be like, oh, my God, that, is that a good book? I've heard it, and you, you'd have a whole conversation, yeah. and now you're just looking at a screen. But, but the, the, so if it was your wife's book and, uh, or, or a different one, but the same principles, does everything have consciousness in the universe, or is it, is, uh, does every object, and if so, what, does every, what, are, what are the implications of that? Well, one, we don't know, because we don't know how consciousness emerges in the physics of things, or even that it does emerge. I mean, I think it's, you know, so yeah, my, my wife in her book, Conscious, uh, did have a, a section on pan, what's called panpsychism, the idea that's that consciousness... That's the, with the brains cut in half. No, no, well, yeah, well that's, that was also in the book, but that, so those, those split-brain studies are illuminating because it's, it's, we know that it's possible to, so just briefly, um, as a... A cure for grand mal seizures, you know, like the, the, the last ditch cure is to actually divide the hemispheres of the brain along the, the longitudinal fissure. You, you cut the corpus callosum, which is a, the white matter tracks that, that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And when you do that, for the longest time, it was not clear that that did much of anything other than mitigate the seizures, but people seem to be, you know, more or less intact. But then some, some very brilliant work done by um, Roger Sperry 
uh, for which he won the Nobel Prize. Um, and there were other people, Mike Gazzaniga and, and uh, Iran Zidel and other people were involved. Uh, Joe Bogan was the, the neurosurgeon. Um, the, uh, they discovered that if you pre- presented stimuli to in, in uh, one half of the visual field, you could, you could selectively provoke or interrogate the hemispheres, right? So you, you would show something in the, in the right visual field. It would only be seen by the left hemisphere. And because most people, certainly most right-handers, have most, if not all, of their language ability in the left hemisphere, when you talk to the subject, you'd be talking to the, the, the half of the brain that had seen the stimulus, right? And when you reverse that, when you, when you put the stimulus in the left visual field, left side of the visual field, it then got piped to the right hemisphere, and the left chattering hemisphere knew nothing about it. And so you'd ask the subject, what did you just see? And he or she would say nothing. Uh, but then when asked to reach with his or her left hand to pick up the object that supposedly he or she didn't see, the, the right hemisphere that was just you know silently seething over the, the, the bad account of the left <laughs> hemisphere would reach out with the left hand, over which it has almost all the control, and um, you know pick up the object. And then when shown, so let's say, just to make this easier to understand, let's say you show the picture of a, of a key to, in the left visual field, seen only by the right hemisphere, and you ask the person, what did you just see? The person will say, I didn't see anything. Or if you showed them something, something different simultaneously, they would say they'd seen that thing, but they know nothing about the key. And then you say, well, well take your left hand and pick up this object that you, you know, that you may or may not have seen. The right hemisphere will reach for a key and pick it up. And then when asked, you know, why, did you, why did you pick up the key if you are not aware of having seen a key? The left hemisphere will confabulate a story, like with apparently no... Just make the whole thing up. In a cognitive dissonance. Just just tell a story in which it, it seems to have full belief, right? I mean, it's, very, it's a very Trumpian part of the brain, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just a bullshitter in, yeah. the, in the left hemisphere. And, and yet that, it's, it's, it's driving much of our conversation with ourselves and the world. But without without any apparent reality testing, it'll just, it'll just say, well, you know, I, because I, I got locked out of my house last week, so I probably picked it up. You know. And that, you know, that is convincing, apparently. Uh, and, you know, we, we can notice this, this kind of process in ourselves a, a lot, right? I mean, we, we tell ourselves a story, we tell, uh, and it's, you know, there's a vast amount of psychological work that shows that the story, this, this actually connects back to this notion of free will, because the, the, the story we have in our heads about why we do certain things, we know often bears no relationship to why we actually did those things, right? The justification, like, why did you decide to, you know, pick that shirt, right? It's like, well, we have a we have a story, but, you know, we know that had this been designed in a lab, we could have been experimentally manipulated in all kinds of ways that we would have no insight into, right? It's like the, the question you ask in the app where you're like, pick a movie, and right. you don't know, yeah. you, you think you picked the movie because you've, you made the decision, but in reality, right. you I mean, the, the crucial about the, why. Yeah, the crucial point there is, though, that even when your story is correct, 
that doesn't suggest free will. That just yeah. uh, suggests more determinism. But, but, but we often just don't even have insight into the determinism or the insight we think we have is wrong. Anyway, so split, the split brain studies showed that it's even possible for the, the linguistic subject in a person's head to have more or less zero insight into the full consciousness of the other hemisphere. So like the point of view of the left hemisphere in a divided brain seems to be of a conscious subject who does not know that there's another conscious subject in, you know, on the other side of the longitudinal fissure, right? So, and, and you can have, um, I mean, the, the, the hemispheres could be at war with each other. You could have, you know, the, the left hemisphere is trying to button the shirt and the right hemisphere is unbuttoning it. And there can be like literal tug of wars over objects. Um, the left hemisphere can can be trying be trying to embrace the the wife or husband, and the the right hemisphere can be trying to harm the white or husband. I mean, the wife or husband. I mean, it's just com- it can be completely bizarre. But uh, the interesting thing from the on the question of panpsychism is that we already know that it's possible to to have an island of consciousness in an in a adult human brain for which part of the, the, the linguistically competent brain doesn't have insight. So it's like you, like you can't, you can't feel it from the inside because it's disconnected from it. And from the outside, there is no evidence that the brain is conscious apart from the behavior it produces. So if you imagined a, a, um, a split brain subject that for whatever reason was paralyzed on the, the left side of the body, right? Um, you would, I mean, you would certainly expect you would have a conscious subject in the right hemisphere that could never communicate its consciousness. I mean, this is, we, we know this happens when you take someone with locked-in syndrome, right? You have a, a, forget about split brains. You can, you can just be paralyzed by having a stroke and, you know, a brainstem stroke, uh, and, uh, not be able to move, not be able to communicate that you're, you're a prisoner of now a prisoner of your body and have your consciousness be completely undiminished. I mean, did you ever read the book, uh, the, the diving bell and the butterfly? No. Um, or is it the butterfly and the diving bell? It's one of those. Um, uh, great, great book, great short book that, you know, had to be short because it was written by I blink by the, I mean, this was the editor of, um, I think French Vogue. Um, uh, his last name is You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.